As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter 1. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy-to-read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Ask NT Wright Anything podcast. Hello and welcome. It's Justin Bradley with you for your fortnightly theology fest. Welcome along. Uh, and actually not quite fortnightly at the moment because uh, we've had a, a little bit of a break in recording with Tom. He's been rather busy at the moment with uh, his move from Scotland down to Oxford. But we're in the process of lining up some fresh editions of the Ask N.T. Write Anything podcast. Uh, so to tide you over for the moment, I'm going to be bringing you uh, something from the archives. It's a profile interview recorded a couple of years ago around the time of the release of The Day the Revolution Began, Tom's book on the atonement. Uh, so look out for that coming to you uh, in a moment. Time. Uh, thanks to all those who uh, said hi at the recent unbelievable Live in LA event. Uh, it was great to meet some listeners of the Ask NT Write Anything podcast who had uh, transitioned over to Unbelievable as well, my other podcast. But a uh, great time there. And if you want to hear more about it, do go and listen to the Unbelievable podcast. Uh, and I'll be telling you all about it there and releasing some of the material from what was a fantastic event in Costa Mesa. Uh, but here on the show, uh, still running our competition, make sure you're subscribed to our newsletter by the end of October. If you do, you'll be in the running for that Bible for Everyone draw. Uh, Three copies of that to give away, all signed by Tom. And you can get the latest videos, bonus content, and of course, ask a question yourself by getting subscribed to the newsletter. And the website, as usual, askntwrite.com. So we'll be getting back to your question to Tom on the next edition of the podcast. But today it's my questions. Uh, and this is from an interview I recorded with Tom a couple of years ago for a different podcast, uh, the Profile Podcast, which is produced in association with Premier Christianity magazine. If you enjoy uh, what you hear today, uh, then you might be interested in subscribing to that podcast as well, actually, the Profile from Premier Christianity, uh, because every single week they bring really interesting interviews with all kinds of Christians from all walks of life. Uh, You can find that, again, wherever you get your podcasts from. It's one of uh, a number of podcasts that Premier produce. But for now, here's my interview with Tom, talking about his life, faith and ministry, and talking about his atonement theology. Well, I'm thrilled to be joined on the profile today by Tom Wright. Tom Wright, of course, is well known to many as a leading British Bible scholar. He's a 
former Anglican bishop as well. And uh, he's got all kinds of books to his name, both his, if you like, academic work as N.T. Wright and his popular level books uh, as Tom Wright. Uh, Tom, welcome along to The Profile. Good to be with you. It's great to have you on the show today. Um, we like to talk about all aspects of someone's life. We, we've got little time, though, so, it, so we'll, we'll, we'll have a condensed version of your story. <laughs> you grew up in a Christian family, is that correct? Yes, a, a church-going family, a very ordinary middle Anglican type um, church on Sundays, um, hymns around the piano, saying prayers at bedtime. And I was encouraged to read my Bible from quite an early age. And uh, once having started, I have never seen any reason to stop. <laughs> and you've gone on to read it in the original <laughs> Greek course, yes. uh, as well. Um, I'm always amazed when you do a show with me here at Premier Christian Radio. You, you sort of can recall things to mind, but you can equally just trans, translate on the hoof from your Greek. Well, the, the Greek New Testament is quite a small book. I mean, it's not as though it's the entire corpus of classical Greek. One can know this little book quite well. Yes, absolutely. Um, what persuaded you that you wanted to go in the direction of academia? Did, did, uh, you, know, did, did you ever kind of consider any other kind of vocation in oh, your yes. life? Oh, um, yes. I knew from an early age I wanted to be ordained. My grandfather, my mother's father, was a parish priest who was an archdeacon, and he was a super chap, and I remember as a small boy just liking him enormously and, and thinking, wow, that's what I'd like to do, I'd like to be up there on a Sunday and <laughs> preaching and leading services. And, and he was a great singer as well, and I've always enjoyed singing. Music's been very important. Church music's been very important. But it was... Then only in my late teens, when I um, scraped into Oxford by the skin of my teeth and then started studying philosophy, that I started to realize this huge world of ideas out there and and grappling with marvelous great things Mm -hmm. and great writers. And then started to think, wow, I wonder if maybe somehow I could be part of all that. And how does that fit with being a priest, with being ordained, with preaching sermons? Then the more I was studying theology, the more I thought, this is what I want to do. I'll spend, spend my life studying the Bible and teaching people about it. And of mm. course, um, clergy ought to be doing yes. that. So in a sense, I've been riding those yes. two horses and the academic and the pastoral. And I've tried to keep them in balance, though it's not always been yeah. easy. Who would you say were your, your great influences growing up and through those student years? Well, through my teens, there was a man who sadly has just died this last week, a man called Richard Gorry, who you won't have heard of. Uh, he was English but worked all his life in Scotland, and he ran the Scottish Scripture Union camps, and I used to go to those as often as I could in school holidays and then was a helper on them when I was at student age myself. And Richard was a wonderful, patient, loving, prayerful Bible teacher, a very wise man, a very godly man, the sort of man that you really wanted to be with as much as you could. But when you were with him, it was kind of special. It was a bit like being with Jesus, I mean, Mm. quite seriously. And he was a huge influence on me. Um, There were teachers through my undergraduate years. Keith Weston, who was um, rector of St. Ebb's Church in Oxford, was a great preacher and teacher, a lovely friend and and support. My own um, graduate teacher was George Caird, a great scholar and a great influence on me. And then Charlie Mole in Cambridge, I got to know latterly after he'd retired, another great New Testament scholar. And these were wonderful people who held Christian ministry and preaching and a prayerful life with biblical scholarship and just fuse the two together Mm. and you know if I could be a little bit like that that'd be great. When did you get ordained was it in the? I was ordained in the mid-70s when I slightly delayed because I was doing my doctorate Um, but I was ordained deacon in 75 priest in 76 so I'm coming up to my 40th anniversary. There you go so 40 years later I mean did you have any idea what 
the church or part of the Anglican church would look like today, what the particular no. issues no. particularly... Nobody saw coming what we have had over the last generation or two. Although when you understand where we are now, you can see the roots of it going sure. a long way back. I didn't know very much at that stage about the worldwide church, although when I was quite young, I was asked to go as a, as a young delegate to the World Council of Churches in Nairobi in 1975, which was fascinating. That was an eye-opener <laughs> um, because the World Council had everything from um, extreme far-left people to yes. Greek Orthodox yeah, and yeah. everything. So to, to discover that one was part of a much mm. larger family, it was a wonderful experience, but also quite scary. Yes. And I think I've gone on being amazed <laughs> and awed and also a little bit anxious about the worldwide church and where it's all going. Do you think that if you were able to sort of make a an informed choice today, let's say, that wasn't influenced by the circumstances you grew up in, would you be an Anglican, do you think? Oh, that's a good question. Um, this is not, I mean, it, it's it's very odd. It's like, could you have had different parents? Exactly, almost, yes. Because, of course, I grew up in mm. it. There have been moments when I've thought, do I really belong here? Should <laughs> I be somewhere else? And, of course, there are many people who yeah. grew up in one denomination and have moved elsewhere. Um, I happen not to have done. And one of the reasons for that is partly a love of the, the classic liturgy and its music. Mm. And it's a great tradition to be musically prayerful or prayerfully musical in. Um, but also because the Anglican tradition... Uh, in, at its best, showcases scripture itself in a way that few others do. Mm. Morning and evening prayer and the Eucharist, if done properly, you get an awful lot of Bible flowing through your system, mm. not just as information, but as prayer, as worship. And that, to me, is, is, has always been yes. very central and important. I read an interesting article recently which said as much as it appreciated the love of the Bible that evangelicals have, they often aren't that good necessarily in their informal worship styles of actually presenting the Bible. Absolutely. And I was discussing this with some folk just the other day because actually what good liturgy does, if you have an Old Testament reading, a New Testament reading, these are not to inform you. We, we used to call them the lessons, the first lesson, the second lesson, which was misleading. That's actually a bad translation of lectio, which means reading. Because what you're doing with the little bit of the Old Testament you read is you're pushing your nose up against the window and seeing the whole sweep of everything from Genesis to Malachi. Ditto, this little bit of the New Testament, you have in your mind the whole sweep of mm. the New Testament. And the reason you're reading them is to celebrate the mighty acts of God. And you happen to be privileged to be witnessing this and just holding them gratefully mm. before God, rather than saying, this is the bit I need to learn today. Of course, there will be bits you need to learn and preach yeah. on. But I would love to see us recapture that. And also to discover the people in our congregations who know how to read well in public. It isn't just blah, 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 blah. It ought to, and, nor is it a matter of a sort of a highfalutin West End actor going over the top, mm. but a matter of, of wise, powerful, clear interesting reading preferably with new translations yeah. being yeah. used to bring out more of the flavor when you read the bible do you tend to read it as an academic as a historian approaching a historical text or do you regard it as a an, a life breathed uh, divinely inspired word that will have be more than any other text you might read on that day it'll, it'll do more for you than the times will the, the only answer to all of that is yes all of the above <laughs> i've 
I was, somebody suggested to me when I was a student that I should have two Bibles, one for academic study and one for personal study. And I knew as soon as that was said that that was entirely wrong. Right. Just as we discover who God is by looking at who Jesus was and is, and we know who Jesus was and is because he actually lived and died and rose again in first century Palestine. And you, if you try and bypass the history, mm. you will get God and Jesus wrong. Right. In the same way, if you imagine that this living, wonderful word isn't firmly rooted in the cultures in which it was born and written, then you will, again, misinterpret it. So that when I'm reading, I mean, I read large chunks of the Bible morning by morning, mm. um, and I don't sort of take off one bit of the brain and put on another. <laughs> I am engaging with this text at every level. And some emphases will be slightly different, and some will make me pause and pray, yeah. and others will make me think oh my goodness, and scribble something down for use later on when I'm writing a lecture or whatever. <laughs> but the whole thing flows together for yeah. me. Well, the Ask N.T. Write Anything podcast comes to you courtesy of Premier in partnership with SBCK and N.T. Write Online. Now, Tom has published many books, and if you're just starting out, you may not know where to begin. Well, SBCK, Tom's UK publisher, currently have a buy one, get one half price deal on some of his most popular titles, like Simply Christian and Simply Jesus. Those are kind of books that help you make sense of the big picture of Christianity. There are also others you may not have heard of, such as For All the Saints, Remembering the Christian Departed, and God in Public, How the Bible Speaks Truth to Power Today. So get the buy one, get one half price deal over at sbckpublishing.co.uk forward slash askntwrite. What, what would you say is the biggest change of mind you've had when it comes to your understanding of scripture mm, interesting uh, in all the time you've been doing i know lots of people whose yeah, minds yeah, have yeah, been yeah, changed yeah, yeah. by you and the <laughs> way why, you've yeah, presented yeah. scripture in a fresh yeah, way yeah. to them but but what was that moment yes, for you um, it's interesting i suppose it was a change from an early i'll use the shorthand first and then i'll explain it an early dualism to a realization of what it meant that God is the creator and the recreator. And I can track this because I was asked to write a little commentary on Colossians many years ago. And in the middle of Colossians 1, there's this wonderful passage about that, that Jesus is the image of God through whom and for whom and by whom all things were created and all things in heaven and earth. And when I was doing the first draft of that commentary, I really couldn't get my head around the involvement of Jesus in creation and in recreation, and why God wants to recreate the world. Because I'd grown up more or less thinking that the purpose was this world is not my home, I'm mm. just passing through. Yes. So any idea of recreation was kind of odd. And so I put that away for a couple of years. And when I came back to it and started again, I was a little worried, what am I going to do with that difficult passage? I got to it mm. and I couldn't see where the difficulty was. And mm. I realized that during that period of two years, something quite deep inside me had changed and I had been transformed myself so that now this bit of scripture was meaning what I hope it ought to mean. And so that then has played out slowly in the rest of my life. And perhaps the biggest thing there would be that instead of talking about going to heaven when we die, which we all talked about mm. growing up, mm. I realized the New Testament isn't about that at all. The kingdom of heaven is not Jesus saying, here's a kingdom called heaven and here's how to get there. The kingdom of heaven means the sovereign rule of the God of heaven on earth 
as in heaven. And studying Jesus, as I've tried to do intensively, historically as well as theologically, and studying the rest of the New Testament, that has been absolutely transformative. And it goes on transforming everything else. It isn't just that our vision of the future is now different. It's our vision of everything else, of who we are, is different as a result. And and if I could encapsulate a theme that runs through so many of your books this this would be it Mm -hmm. and certainly it's there in your latest book Mm -hmm. the day the revolution began reconsidering the meaning of jesus's crucifixion and and to some extent I, i think what you're going against is is the rather i guess formulaic sort of uh, idea of there being a kind of a, a mathematical sum that God does and we just need to mm-hmm. say mm-hmm. sort of make sure that we're on board with that right. and right. and then we get to heaven and you know and we're and just waiting right. out yes. our time yes. Yes. And, and that somehow this this equation happens at the cross yes. Yes. so okay yes. if that's if that's not the right way to be thinking right. about the right. cross give us your picture of, of the right way right I think I want to start at the end and say God's design is as Ephesians 1 says to join all things in heaven and on earth together in the Messiah Now, in the Messiah, that is in Jesus, heaven and earth come together. He is the heaven and earth person. And what he does in his life, in his inauguration of the kingdom, in his death and resurrection and ascension, is to make that now a cosmic reality. And the New Testament comes back again and again and says that something happened when Jesus died as a result of which the world is a different place. Nobody realized until Easter Day, and it took them a while to realize even then, but that something happened. And this is very difficult for us to talk about because it's to do with there being dark forces in the world which we humans give power to by worshipping them, whether we call them gods or whether we just think of them as money and sex and power or whatever it is. And then they have power over us. We worship them, which is idolatrous, our humanness fractures, which is sin, etc. How are we rescued from that? And here's the problem, that we in the West have tended to see the whole thing in terms of have I behaved myself sufficiently or not. Here is a moral standard. God wants me to obey it. Oh, dear, I haven't. Then God's going to punish me. Oh, fortunately, somebody gets in the way and takes the rap on my behalf. And I want to say that's a very low-grade, almost pagan view of how a god might behave and it's we get there because we have moralized our view of humanity morals matter enormously but humans are more than moral keeping machines humans are meant to be reflecting god's love into the world and reflecting the praises of creation back to the creator and it's very interesting that in the book of revelation it says that the, the the blood of the lamb is shed in the new passover so that we might be the royal priesthood the kingdom and priests not so that we can heave a sigh of relief and go to heaven. In other words, it isn't about moralizing our vision of humans. It's about a vocation. And Jesus rescues us from all the things that get in the way of our being the genuine human beings we are supposed to be and can start to be now to practice ahead of the final new creation. So it's a little more complicated than we normally think. But much richer, I think. But at a basic level, you know, if, if you ask the average Christian, what does it mean? to you that Jesus died on the cross they said well he he died for my sins mm-hmm. he he died so that I could be forgiven yes now they may have then if you ask them the further question well how did that work then yeah. they might say well, well it's it's something along the lines of you know he took the yes. punishment yes. that I was owed yes. or yes. Uh, or maybe they'll do it in the in the way you yes. talk about yes. this idea of there was a moral bar and yeah, yeah, yeah. only yeah. Christ could jump over it and so on Okay, now are you saying that's wrong? Are you saying I, that's that's not the right I'm way to think about it? There are lots of half truths out there. Mm. And as somebody said to me years ago, I forget who it was, 
if you take a half-truth and make it into the whole truth, it becomes an untruth. Okay. And that's a very serious thing because then the vision of God that people have is distorted and so many people are actually put off the gospel. Some of them having tried to believe it for many Mm. years and then finally they just say, no, that sounds like a bullying God. If there is a God, he can't really be like that. And sadly, there are many churches in which this vision of an angry God who's going to get you, who demands mm. blood, and da 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 Unfortunately, somebody steps in the way, and he happened to be innocent, and he happened to be his own son. And people, So I often said, to hear some people talk about the gospel, you'd think that John 3.16 would have said, God so hated the world that he mm. killed his only mm. son. It doesn't. It says, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Now, and it's... And you, it's all very well. Sometimes people say, well, all that picture is important, wrath and sin and hell and all the rest of it. And it's because God loves us. But simply adding the word love onto the end of that story mm. can be actually right. even worse. It, it is like what abusers do when they say, I, I love you so much, you know, and it's hideous. Sure. So that people have seen that in our generation and have reacted against it. But I, I really do want to say, I didn't write this book because of those abuses. I wrote it because out of my own living with Scripture Mm. for many years, I've just seen what I think is a bigger picture where it all fits together so that the punishment for our sins matters as well. God condemned sin in the flesh of Christ. That's that's important. I mean, what what to you then is happening when someone becomes a Christian, they they trust in Jesus? Do they have to have sort of understood or at any level kind of um, believed in a particular type of exchange of of sin and innocence and righteousness and so on at the cross? Or or is it simply as simple as trusting in Jesus in in some way? The more one knows as a pastor and as a church historian about how people have come to faith, the more you realise that God moves in many mysterious ways. And I think for many people, it isn't at all about an intellectual thing. And this may be a partly a personality mm. thing. Some people are just gifted by God with the, I've got to think this all through yeah. bit. But if they're wise, they should know that there are other people for whom that may come a little bit later. Mm. And they are drawn by some kind of irresistible love which they see in Jesus, maybe a painting or something uh, something they've read about Jesus or the story of the prodigal son. There is no atonement theory in the story of the prodigal son, but this idea of a father reaching out his arms and running down the road to welcome this wretched young lad. Mm. You know, how can you not be moved by that and just say, ah, thank you, this is for me. And I want to say, yeah, At that very moment, God says, yes, this is for you, and you're welcome. And now, in the fullness of time, maybe tomorrow or next week or next year, there's some stuff it would be wise for you to get your head around. I've often thought that, in a sense, at the the cross itself, there is that moment with Jesus and the thief, and Mm -hmm, the the thief um, presumably not having any idea of what's going on here says remember me but says remember me when you come into your kingdom and jesus says today you'll be with me in paradise and there's so there's a sense that i've I've always felt as well in a way it's not dependent on us having a kind of right theology that that we get sort of exactly but i mean i believe in theology i believe in learning to think Mm. christianly it's one of the great themes of most of my work (laughs) is that one of the reasons the new testament is written is to teach these early christians to think christianly because they're going to need to learn how to think to navigate all the problems that they're faced with. And the cross will be at the middle of that. But 
that task of learning to think Christianly is something that comes to different people at different levels at different stages. And I believe that little children can have faith. I believe mm. that when uh, a parent gazes at a child or a grandchild, I did this morning with my four-month-old grandson, we just had a good bit of eye contact and smiling mm. at each other. There's a wonderful sense of love which passes between, which is pre-articulate. Yes. And I really think if God is the great God we know him to be, God has the same ability yeah. to communicate with and, people. And I, I think of that as well, I suppose, in terms of our, perhaps there are people who have limited intellectual abilities. Course, and you, you told a story, I wonder if you'd retell it, of, oh, yeah, yeah. of visiting a community which yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, where a lot of uh, people with Down syndrome yes. were present and, and went to take communion. And, yes. and they may not have a f- you know, full yeah, and complete yeah, understanding yeah. of the... Of, of yes, I mean, it's that. a wonderful, wonderful church. I remember in, in Houghton Le Spring, actually, in County Durham, where uh, the first time I, I went there, I was astonished, take, uh, celebrating the Eucharist and looking down, and the front few rows being full of these people, I think teens and 20s uh, with Down syndrome, and they were just thrilled to be there and part of the community, and the community was obviously thrilled to have them there. Mm. They weren't separate, they were there, and when they came up to the communion rail, the look of utter delight reaching out their hands. Mm. And I want to say, Jesus said, unless you be converted and become like little children, I think he'd have said, or like this lot. Yes. And, and there is a simplicity and a total acceptance mm. of the love of God. And I think God has a very special care for those. And that is really beautiful. So that then, of course, we are all given different gifts. And when you look at the stories of the early church, there are great theologians and people with the most amazing brains, Irenaeus, Augustine, and people like that. But the reason Christianity spread was because of ordinary Christians on the street looking after their neighbours, helping them when there were medical emergencies, teaching them because medicine and education were not free and it was mm. just for the elite. And these Christians were doing it for everybody. Um, and there was a sense of caring for the poor and so on. And people said, this is a different way to be human. What's going on? And ultimately, yes, it's because something happened on the cross as a result of which the powers that had held the pagan world in a dark captivity were defeated. And the proof of that is that then the gospel can go out and people's lives can be transformed. Is this, to some extent, what people have termed the Christus Victor model of the atonement? Yes, it is. But but the problem with that is that in the, um, I forget what it was, 50s and 60s, there was a famous book on Christus Victor, which played it off against the other theories. Mm. And it was that book by a a Swedish bishop called Gustav Aulain was obviously reacting against low-grade presentations of an angry, wrathful God and substitution. And so said, no, 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 forget all that. It's about God winning the victory in Christ over the powers. So it became an either-or. So many people have thought, because we believe in penal substitution, we mustn't believe in Mm. Christus Victor. That's completely wrong. And the Gospels are the place... Now, here's an odd thing. (laughs) I've read a lot about the the meaning of the cross in the last few years as I've been working towards Mm. this book. Most of the books I've read about the cross hardly touch on the Gospels. One or two texts here Mm, and there. mm. The Gospels are all about the kingdom of God being established on earth as in heaven. And when Jesus dies on the cross, the primary thing that's about is the messianic victory. He has king of the Jews above his head. And it is couched in terms of a victory over the powers, over Herod and Pilate who have put him there actually he's winning the victory and everything else that flows out from that representative substitution example etc 
is within that context. In, in what sense, though? It, it sounds amazing, but, but in what sense did a man dying in a, on a cross in the era of the Romans mm-hmm. when thousands, tens of thousands of people would have suffered similar deaths, mm-hmm. in what way did that usher in a revolution? In what way did that defeat the powers of yeah. darkness? The, the short answer is you have to read the book because that's precisely <laughs> the question which the book is trying to address. Yeah. And part of our problem is that we in the modern Western church and world are so far out from thinking the way that first century Christians thought that things they could take for granted in a slogan, we have to reconstruct with mm. difficulty like people learning a new language. But but actually, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John are such amazing texts. And again, so many Christians belittle the Gospels by just reading 10 or a dozen verses at a time and getting a little lesson out of it as though this is a sort of Christian version of Aesop's fables. You know? <laughs> uh, no, the Gospels are telling the story of how Israel came to its appointed vocational role in the person of Jesus, the story of how the creator God came to do the thing which he had always promised to do in the person of Jesus. And the Gospels are telling these stories so that this comes together. But then there's the dark strand which starts right at the beginning in Matthew when you get old Herod the Great uh, killing all the babies and plotting to kill Jesus as well, which is a bit like Pharaoh killing all the babies in Egypt and so on. But there's a sense right from then that evil is clustering around Jesus and gathering like a huge great storm cloud until in Luke's telling of the arrest in the garden, Jesus says, this is your hour and the power of darkness. And we see what's happening, that the evil of all the world is somehow being lured onto this one place. Mm. That's the story the Gospels are telling. Mm. And it's a very odd picture for us. But the point is that on the cross, that is dealt with. Paul says God condemned sin in the flesh of the Messiah. And the proof of that is that Jesus rises again. Right. And that can only happen if evil and death mm. have been dealt with. And then the proof is that by God's spirit, new things happen in the world. The kingdom of God goes out and yes. changes lives and communities mm. Mm. in a way which was unthinkable before. Yes. That's, that's so you, you sort of see the cross as this sort of point in history where, where from that point God is able to move in radically new ways. Absolutely. absolutely, And it's very odd to say God is, because if God is God then... Yes. But, but the answer is yes. And of course, it's all about the sort of God God is. That people often say, why doesn't God do something? And people want God to send in the tanks and just <laughs> blip out. But no, because of who God is, as we see actually throughout Scripture... He is the God who wants to work as the God of love. And ultimately, he gives his own self in the person of his son so that the wickedness and evil, the mega evil, the sin with a capital S, if you like, is more than just the accumulation of all the bad things you and I have done. It's a darker force to which we have given our power. Mm. That is finally defeated. And see... It's very interesting in Paul's theology, when he talks about the Gentile mission going out into the non-Jewish world, Paul links that directly to the fact that the principalities and powers, as he calls them, have been overthrown. That's why he can go and say in the marketplace, you're welcome too, and you don't have to become a Jew in order to become a Christian. You're welcome as you are because all the barriers are down because of what Jesus did on the cross. Tom Wright, thank you very much for joining me on the profile today. And if you want to find uh, more interesting interviews with people from all walks of life (laughs) and their Christian story, 
Do read Premier Christianity magazine and the profile is brought to you in association with that title. Uh, Again, thank you, Tom, for being with me. Well, thank you for being with us on today's edition of the programme. And a reminder that today's interview was from the archives of the Profile podcast. And if you want more in-depth interviews with Christians in all walks of life, it's a, a really great weekly podcast that you might want to subscribe to. You're looking for the Profile from Premier Christianity magazine, wherever you get your podcasts from. Uh, Just a reminder that that competition is still open. If you get subscribed to the Ask N.T. Write Anything newsletter, by the end of October, you'll be in the draw for one of three Bible for Everyone's signed by Tom Wright himself. It's his own fresh translation of scripture, along with the Old Testament by John Goldingay. And if you get yourself signed up, you'll also get the latest videos, bonus content, and of course the opportunity to ask a question yourself. That's all available at askntwrite.com. In the meantime, thanks for being with us this week and we'll see you next time. You've been listening to the Ask N.T. Write Anything podcast. Let other people know about this show by rating and reviewing it in your podcast provider. For more podcasts from Premier, visit premier.org.uk slash podcasts.